You're listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, if you would turn with me in the book, in the Bible, to the book of Job. And this morning, we're looking, or this evening, we're looking together at chapter 19. You'll find this on page 429 of the Pew Bible. Very famous chapter. Couldn't possibly skip over this one. Job chapter 19. We'll read through the entire chapter together. Hear the word of God. Then Job answered and said, How long will you torment me and break me in pieces with words? These ten times you've cast reproach upon me. Are you not ashamed to wrong me? And even if it be true that I have erred, my error remains with myself. If indeed you magnify yourselves against me and make my disgrace an argument against me, know then that God has put me in the wrong and closed his net about me. Behold, I cry out violence, but I am not answered. I call for help, but there is no justice. He has walled up my way so that I cannot pass, and he has set darkness upon my paths. He has stripped from me my glory and taken the crown from my head. He breaks me down on every side, and I am gone, and my hope he has pulled up like a tree. He has kindled his wrath against me and counts me as his adversary, His troops come on together. They have cast up their siege ramp against me and encamp around my tent. He has put my brothers far from me, and those who knew me are wholly estranged from me. My relatives have failed me, and my close friends have forgotten me. The guests in my house and my maidservants count me as a stranger. I've become a foreigner in their eyes. I call to my servant, but he gives me no answer. I must plead with him with my mouth for mercy. My breath is strange to my wife, and I am a stench to the children of my own mother. Even young children despise me. When I rise, they talk against me. All my intimate friends abhor me, and those whom I loved have turned against me. My bones stick to my skin and to my flesh, and I have escaped by the skin of my teeth. Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me, O you, my friends, for the hand of God has touched me. Why do you, like God, pursue me? Why are you not satisfied with my flesh? Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead they were engraved in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. If you say how we will pursue him, and the root of the matter is found in him, be afraid of the sword, for wrath brings the punishment of the sword, that you may know there is a judgment. Well, this remarkable speech of Job is in response to the second speech of Bildad. His so-called friend had accused him, of indirectly at least, of harboring 
clandestinely, unrepentant sin. In verse 5, he says, the light of the wicked is put out. In Job 18, 5, the light of the wicked is put out and the flame of his fire does not shine. And so Bildad pontificated on the dreadful fate of the ungodly and the impenitent. And the not-so-subtle implication was that Job would end up like them. Be sensible, Job. Stop making your excuses. Come clean and confess your sin. And, of course, Bildad's shallow orthodoxy led to a total misapplication of biblical truth. This friend's false and misguided accusations plunged Job into desperation. The poor man was suffering more than anybody ever had before him. And so he cries out, how long will you torment me and break me in pieces with words? That inspired statement alone disproves the saying that many of us heard as kids, right? Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Wrong. Proverbs 12 describes words as sword thrusts, and you and I both know and can remember hurtful things that were said to us in childhood. Job has endured wave after wave of harsh and mistaken accusations, and he says, these ten times you've cast reproach upon me, are you not ashamed to wrong me? It's as if with friends like Bildad and the other two, who needs enemies? And so Job's response is a deep dive into the excruciating miseries of his condition. First, his supposed comforters have been anything but a comfort. Their false indictments of his character and conduct have been deeply painful. Second, God himself seems to have turned against him in anger. He's walled up my way, Job says. He's set darkness upon my paths. He's stripped from me my glory, taken the crown from my head. Third, both his family and his friends have failed to stand by him. His own bride is repulsed by him, and his very siblings stand aloof. Look what it says in verse 17. My breath is strange to my wife, and I'm a stench to the children of my own mother. Fourth, the awful physical effects of his disease are almost unbearable. Verse 20. My bones stick to my skin and my flesh, and I have escaped by the skin of my teeth. Here's a man that was wasting away. His skeletal frame has become visible. The poor man was emaciated, not to mention the oozing boils that covered his entire body. And so close to death was he that only by the skin of his teeth has he escaped. And yet God's grace is sufficient God's grace is sufficient as Job's declaration of faith confirmed. In the midst of the most intense suffering, this believer would not give up. And at what seemed like the lowest point in his life, he declared the highest expression of faith. I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he'll stand upon the earth. So what we have here is Job looking beyond his circumstances to the coming of the promised Messiah. That's Job's creed. It's his confession of faith. He believed in the coming Christ. He could not have named the name of Jesus, but he anticipated the advent of Jesus. 
And somehow he had been informed of the promised seed of the woman. Job knew that a champion would come to crush the devil's head. It was by faith, his faith in the Redeemer, to come that he comforted his soul. And that word Redeemer is applied elsewhere in Scripture to a kinsman. You know what that means. It's a close relative that could intervene in cases of extreme hardship. If a person was impoverished or enslaved, he or she could be redeemed. If circumstances demanded that he forfeit his property, the kinsman could buy back the property. If a man died childless, the redeemer could marry his widow and raise up an heir for him. That's a redeemer. And the story of Ruth the Moabitess is a perfect illustration of the concept. You remember how it went. Both her husband and her father-in-law and her brother-in-law died in the land of Moab. So she and Naomi returned to Bethlehem to face a life of severe poverty. Naomi's wealthy relative, Boaz, marries Ruth, redeems the inheritance, raises a son as an heir to the deceased Israelite. And it's a remarkable demonstration of God's loving providential care. Boaz became for Ruth and Naomi a beloved kinsman redeemer. The redeemer to whom Job looked in faith was far more than Boaz. Far more than a mere man. That word redeemer is ascribed more than once to Yahweh himself. The book of Isaiah, for example, ascribes this often to God. In chapter 43 of Isaiah's prophecy, it says, Thus says the Lord, your redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. Chapter 44, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his redeemer, the Lord of hosts. Again in chapter 44, thus says the Lord, your Redeemer who formed you from the womb. And then we find David concluding his meditation upon general and special revelation by ascribing this very word to God. He says, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my Redeemer. You see, throughout the history of Israel, God intervened on behalf of his people. I'll redeem you from Egypt, he promised, with an outstretched arm. And that's what Job must have had in mind when he made his famous declaration. Far more amazingly than Boaz, God himself would intervene for his servant. And I cannot imagine how anyone can miss the reference here to Jesus Christ. They do. Granted, Job's understanding of the coming Christ was very obscure. I don't think he understood that the eternal Son of God would become incarnate. That's the mystery of mysteries. How could anybody have anticipated that? It required infinite condescension for God to enter the virgin womb. Infinite. It was the ultimate humiliation for him to subject himself to the very law that he had set down. And could anybody have imagined that the incarnate deity would die on a cross? No, I think Job's understanding was informed only by shadows. And one wonders how he could have said so much while knowing so little. 
And why is it that we know so much and often say so little? But regardless of how unclear it was, Job genuinely believed in the Son. And he knew that his Redeemer lived and indeed that he is the author of life. And that's how Job comforted himself in the midst of his severe distress. It wasn't a plea for deliverance from his present sufferings. That's what surprises me. He believed that his condition in this life was beyond redemption. He says, he's walled up my way. (laughs) He set darkness on my paths. Any kind of temporal short-term remedy would not have been comforting to him. Rather, what Job does is lift his gaze above this world to the work of God above. Only a full redemption from all the world's evils could satisfy his suffering soul. And whatever he might suffer in this life, he had hope for the life to come because his Redeemer lives. He's not dead. He's not impotent. He's not indifferent. His Redeemer lives. And somehow Job realized, I don't know how, but that the Messiah would one day stand upon the earth. Little did he know that God incarnate would arrive in a common stable. Obscure were the details regarding the nativity of Jesus in Bethlehem. But the Holy Spirit was enlightening Job's mind. That's the only explanation. The Holy Spirit was animating his faith. And that enabled Job to rise above himself to see things way in the future. What did Jesus say about Abraham? He saw my day and he was glad. That's Job. With prophetic vision, Job sees the Messiah standing upon the earth. And I think it's one of the most amazing things revealed in Scripture. Though he was in the form of God, Christ Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. What Paul is saying and what Job is predicting is that the infinite, eternal, unchangeable God would be conceived in the womb of a woman. Born under the law, living an obedient life, conflicting with all of the indignities that this world had to offer, Job was looking ahead to Christ, the incarnate deity, the mystery of mysteries who would empty himself, empty himself of his glory, empty himself of his privilege. And never once did Jesus cease being God. Deity cannot change. There are some who believe such blasphemy At the men's fellowship, we talked briefly about the kenosis doctrine that somehow Jesus stopped being God. I love what John Gerstner says, you'd have to have a PhD to be that stupid. (laughs) The son did not empty himself of deity, rather of his divine glory. He arrived on earth without any vestige of preexistent majesty, as Isaiah tells us. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, 
So in the fullness of time, Jesus came and stood upon the earth. It was an amazing and unprecedented display of true love and humility. And it was to Jesus of Nazareth that Job was looking when he made that statement, at the last he'll stand upon the earth, at the last, in the latter days, during his ministry on earth, as the incarnate son. Jesus Christ, God eternal, would come in the flesh to stand for the sake of Job. And that promised Messiah would lay down his life for, as an offering for sin. He would represent the patriarch and he would go to bat for him. And the incarnate son would vindicate Job in the court of heaven. But you see, what's interesting to me is that Job's faith went even beyond the earthly ministry of Jesus to the general resurrection of the dead. He says in verse 26, after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. Let's face it, Job was on the very brink of death. His flesh had deteriorated, but he had not yet lost the spark of life. There was still breath in his lungs, but he knew that like everybody else, he would eventually die. He would relinquish his spirit, lay down his body, which would eventually decay. His flesh would be consumed not only by the boils, but by death itself. And his skin would be destroyed. You can't avoid putrefaction. It's the fate of every child of Adam descended by natural generation. The only exception to this, of course, was the Lord Jesus himself, the Holy One, whom God would not allow to see corruption. And the coming Messiah would both redeem Job and vindicate him. But briefly, I want us to imagine together what Job's suffering would be like without this kind of hope. You know, the miseries that affliction brings in this life are only the beginning. They are the birth pangs, as it were, of endless punishment, eternal. What's interesting to me is that Scripture does not withhold from us what, will be, what it will be like for the damned. Those who reject Christ, those who die impenitent, Scripture says unmistakably that they will suffer unspeakable torments. All you have to do is look at Paul's letter to the Thessalonians. He says in 2 Thessalonians 1, they'll suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. The story of the rich man and Lazarus highlights the awful reality of such anguish. In this life, the rich man enjoyed his good things and tasted the world's delicacies. The poor man, Lazarus, was impoverished and plagued with sores and isolation. At death, the latter was escorted by the angels to heaven. At death, the former went straight to hell. And it says, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water 
and cool my tongue, for I'm in an anguish in this flame. Our Lord teaches that this man was and continues to be in conscious and continual torment. Jesus does not say things for effect as if hell was an imaginary place. That's not how our Lord teaches. No one spoke more often and no one spoke more soberly than Christ about hell. And in the New Testament, the word eternal is repeatedly applied to the punishments of sin. In Christ's awesome description of the last day, he speaks of judgment, where he tells us that he'll sit on his throne, separating the sheep from the goats, and he'll pass sentence. And at the conclusion of that account, he refers to the goats and the sheep, and this is what he says, these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And clearly, the same word eternal is applied both to blessedness and punishment. That word refers to the duration of the one and the duration of the other. All we have to do is look at the same word ascribed to God who is from everlasting to everlasting to recognize that it's eternal. The New Testament refers to eternal glory, eternal kingdom, eternal inheritance, and eternal redemption. When, therefore, it is applied to punishment, it means never-ending. Never-ending. This is why Jesus himself cautions against disregarding the prophetic warnings. He says, and I quote, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, says our Lord, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And so those, unlike Job, who suffer without his hope will never cease to regret it. You see, Job's afflictions were horrendous. They were unthinkable temporal miseries. The devil was given free reign to carry out a full-fledged assault upon this man. And he lost everything he owned, and he lost everyone he loved, everybody who was dear to him, even his wife, who lived, but turned on him temporarily. But his losses were temporary. His griefs were passing. They were only in this life. For him, better days were on the horizon. He never lost hope in the coming Messiah. He realized that this life is short and its sufferings are light and momentary. Because he knew about the eternal weight of glory that awaited him in heaven. And so he persevered. He drew comfort from this doctrine. He spoke peace to his soul. Paul says to the Thessalonians, encourage one another with these words, resurrection. Because the unbeliever can do no such thing. His hope is in this life only. Proverbs eleven seven: when the wicked dies, his hope will perish and the expectation of wealth perishes too. An unbeliever may try to maintain his confidence while he lives. He can try. But when death comes knocking, his confidence will quickly vanish. He has to leave everything behind. 
He'll plunge into everlasting misery. When a godly man dies, all of his expectations are exceeded. When a wicked man dies, all of his hopes and dreams will perish. And of course, the worst part of hell's torments is the fact that they are endless. The afflictions of this life are like mosquito bites compared to eternal torments. Whatever is temporal is limited. We can see the end of the tunnel. A person swimming doesn't need to be discouraged as long as he can see the bank. But a person swimming or suffering in hell can neither see the bank nor the bottom. Paul says, the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. People mock. They have no idea. The reason God gives us breath tonight is to make our election sure. It's the height of folly to reject Christ and to neglect his offer and to hesitate to act. As Thomas Manton would put it, if this doctrine proves true, you run the hazard of eternal torments and lose the comfort of eternal joys. As clear as he can be. Doesn't this teach us how important it is to be familiar with our creed? I believe in the forgiveness of sins and the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. What comforted Job in his despair was the creed that he confessed. He believed in someone and something outside of himself, the Messiah. He trusted in the Christ to come and he reminded himself of that truth. I don't know why God has stripped me of every earthly comfort, but this I know. My Redeemer lives, and he's going to come, and I'm going to be raised. And if when you and I confess our creed, we do so sincerely, we share the same hope of Job. What a tremendous comfort in this journey through a sin-cursed world. Our sins are forgiven, our bodies will be raised, and will inherit eternal life. So when circumstances make it seem like God is indifferent, speak truth to your soul. Dwell upon the fact that in Christ, he's a reconciled father. Isaiah 63, you are our father. Though Abraham doesn't know us and Israel doesn't acknowledge us, you, O Lord, are our father. Our redeemer from old is your name. It may seem like he's hiding his face. Your flesh may cause you to doubt, but he is your father. He redeemed you with the blood of his son, and you're precious. Job learned that lesson. Remember what he said? Though God slay me, I'll trust in him. So never despair of God's love for you. He doesn't lie, and he will not forsake you. He says, and I quote, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.